I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for uh, being with us, along with my guest, uh, Richard Fine, who is uh, sharing with us some interesting information in regards to uh, what we're talking about, judicial reform and so forth. Uh, some would actually uh, maybe argue, uh, Richard, that um, uh, the system doesn't need to be reformed. It needs to be torn down and then rebuilt on a better foundation. Uh, and yet um, I've often used that, uh, I've asked the question of many of my guests in regards to the other institutions that we have in this country, uh, that should we tear them down and build new ones? They say, oh, no, 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 don't tear them down. Just build a new one that makes the old one obsolete. Uh, so what about that? Um, you're trying to reform the existing system. Is, I mean, that is a daunting task based upon what, what we've seen over, you could say, the last eight years, 10 years, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, and so forth. Um, and yet you've taken this on. Well, that's true. And this becomes a very interesting question because people have said, why did I do that? And there's something that is a little bit off to the side, but there's an organization called the California Lawyers Association, CLA. That came into being when the state well when the state of california decided that they weren't going to have subsections to the california bar association so they had to create a new place they created the new place but they put in the laws of that place that you cannot criticize a judge hmm. now you have a first amendment right and even lawyers have a first amendment right but this gives you another aspect of how the come down takes place because obviously the judges wrote that part of it yeah. because they don't want to be criticized because they want everyone to think that their integrity is so great that they can't be criticized. You have a common law procedure through the common law are basically not statutes or rules, but they're the decisions that come out starting from England onwards. In the common law, you cannot sue a judge for money. So you don't even have a chance to go against a judge. By statute, in the, under the federal law, you can sue the judge to remove him from your case, but you aren't going to get any money out of him. Hmm. That's going to take place whether you go to the federal court of claims or whether you're going to go to your state court, or the, just the regular federal courts. So these are the side things that come in. Now, getting directly to your question, the only way that you can reform is by getting the legislature to do it. But then there's another problem, and this one's very interesting. There's a man by the name of Jess Unruh who actually wrote the Unruh Civil Rights Law. And Justin Andrew made a statement that really shows what's happening. He said, California has the best government that money can buy. <laughs> and it's uh, true. And they even say that on the fe at the federal level, too. Yeah. Well, on the, on the fe oh, yes. When you can actually go to um, the, there's the website which comes, uh, oh, it's, uh, it's the political website, and it'll tell you every week what lobbying firms have gone, 
lost their clients, what new clients are going to, which lobbying, lobbying firm is existing, and all of this type of stuff. And interesting enough, years ago, law firms didn't get, theoretically didn't get involved in lobbying. Now you can look and you can find many of the major law firms in the United States also have a separate lobbying section. Now, if you're a lobbyist, you have to register. But if you're a law firm, you you have a right to practice. So now they actually register their lobbying sections and it goes out with the lobbying. Now, there's someone will say, well, just cut out all the lobbying. And sure, you can cut it out. Probably then you're going to run into your next problem. If they aren't there as lobbyists, how is the industry going to go in and try and get the legislation that they write and what they want to put in? Mm. So you're going to see who's going to which legislator's money-raising party because political also reports that type of stuff. So you have all of these different things. Now, this may sound complicated, but it's really not because you have one, a legislature, Number two, you have an executive. And number three, you have a judiciary. The judiciary can call laws to be unconstitutional. The legislature and the executive are there to balance what the judiciary does. So now you're looking at who's getting into the legislature. (laughs) And where's that money coming from? So break it down into its little simplistic parts. And you begin to understand how the system is working. I'm quoting some legal things because it gives you an idea of what laws are actually there that aren't getting enforced. Hmm. And then you look at it to say, well, why aren't they? And then you look at the division, like the attorney general's office in the U.S. or in California, that isn't doing what it's supposed to do. And then you can start looking to see when well, the U.S. Attorney General doesn't run for anything. He's appointed. But when the president changes, who's giving it to the president and how big? And if it's coming through what is known as a PAC, they aren't limited to the $3,000 or so. You know, so you have, we're back to the art of war. <laughs> Operate yeah. with the sun at your back. So they don't really know what you're doing until you hit them. <laughs> But you know, you know, it does sound rather complicated uh, and and daunting uh, for a, 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 an individual who just doesn't know what's they they see what's going on. Okay, they see that, but they don't know where to begin. They don't know how to start this process. And I think that um, another one of our institutions <clears throat> that <clears throat> needs to have a, a new institution uh, erected in order to make that one obsolete is our educational system. I mean, there are a lot of, uh, maybe not details <clears throat> that I learned in civics class. Believe it or not, there I had I went to a civics class back in uh, Arizona. I'm uh, originally from Phoenix, and I remember civics and, and some of the information. And, of course, talking about the three branches of government and this and that and the other thing and all the different elements and, and so forth. And odds are most of the people out there today, they have no clue as to as to what it is, even some of the basic stuff. Uh, I mean, you've already referenced uh, the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States having to do with um, uh, the freedom of speech. However, 
I toss this in for your consideration. I was reading where that amendment and that part of the amendment regarding freedom of speech applied exclusively to condemning or speaking ill or criticizing the government. It didn't mean that you, as they say, could go into a, a movie theater and yell fire and so on and so forth. It was specifically for the purpose of allowing you uh, to, if you have a grievance against the government, you want to speak up about it, you can do that. You have the freedom to do that. Um, But then this draws another question uh, um, uh, for you, whether it's the state constitution of California or the federal interpretation. I mean, we've been debating the issue of uh, the first, uh, the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, the right to bear arms, and and I I I facetiously will give this argument. Say, okay, well, I want a nuclear bomb. I want to bear an arm. I, that's what I want to have. I want to have missiles. I want to have hand grenades. I want to have all of this stuff because the Second Amendment gives me that right. Um, but at the same time, the Second Amendment does not define what arms you can bear for example let's say uh we're talking about automobiles what was the automobile we had at the very beginning what was it a model a right or is it a model t i can't remember model a. model a uh that was the only car there was and for sake of the argument let's say there's an amendment to the constitution that says that you have the right to drive a vehicle but it doesn't specify what kind of vehicle any more than the second amendment specifies what kind of um of arm using that term and we've been debating it since that amendment was put into the constitution so interpretation what about that in terms of the laws that are on the books is there is there any wiggle room in that regard for interpretation that could change some of this that would help you in uh, this process of judicial reform? Well, the to go to the first part of it, yes, they have what is known as common law, or we have what is known as common law, and these are the decisions of the courts. And so the court will look at the Constitution and it will decide, well, let's take the Second Amendment. You go back, they, you also use what is called legislative history. That means at the time that they passed the Second Amendment, what were they really looking at? Well, the right to bear arms really goes really back into the Constitution. So what were they looking at at that point in time? You were looking at a society where was breaking away from England, had gone through a revolution, and is now existing. So there wasn't a limitation put in on what type of arm you can bear because the only arms that they had around at that point in time were the bow and arrow and a rifle and a pistol. So those people that say that you're dealing with the right to bear arms goes all the way back and we can have our rifles and our pistols, you know, and our bows and arrows. But then as time has gone on, you know, people come in with different things, say like a nuclear bomb. And you go back to the Constitution, the Constitution says, well, we've made that vague. But then there may be a court decision that comes in and says, well, you know, 
the Constitution is a living thing. And it moves with the people throughout history. So in the beginning, it didn't talk about a nuclear bomb, because no one even heard of a nuclear bomb back then. But as the weapons of war developed, you ended up with the Gatling machine gun. You ended up with bombs. You ended up with tanks. All these things coming in. And you have common law decisions about that. So on the one side, the people are saying, well, we have the right to bear arms that it's in the Constitution. The interpretations of the Constitution are different just because people think of it as a living being or a living Constitution. Mm -hmm. And that brings you to a very interesting split as to what happens in the court system. Because, and everyone's, you hear these words, and I'm getting into this only because it's so prevalent right now. Mm -hmm. You have Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, and the new judge, uh, I think it's Justice Barrett, who believe in what is known as originalism. Interesting document. (laughs) And that document says, we look at the Constitution as it was written with nothing else. And then you have the other four judges. Well, Roberts goes back and forth. But then you have the three other judges, so-called liberal judges, say, wait a minute. Constitution is a living document, and you have to put this stuff in also. Mm-hmm. So bring it up to the interesting part of today. You have a split at the top level of the judiciary. Here's another interesting fact. In interpreting the law, the decisions of the United States Supreme Court overrule or are superior or supreme, as the Constitution says, to any other state decision. In fact, the the article says the Constitution, the laws, and the treaties themselves individually are supreme. And then you end up having these interpretations. And if the U.S. Supreme Court rules in a certain way, that's going to be part of it also. That gives you your split right then and there. And that split has never been as prevalent as it is now, other than in the 1930s when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was attempting to put in the NRA and the judges were knocking him down at all times. These were the Supreme Court justices. He decided, well, I'm going to get around this because the executive and the legislature have the ability to appoint more judges. The number of judges is not in the Supreme Court. We're not in the Constitution. So you can add to it. So what he did is he said, I'm going to raise the number of justices in the United States Supreme Court to 15. Now, all of these judges who were existing at that point in time said, wait a minute, he's diluting our power. (laughs) This guy's doing an end run on us. Suddenly their decisions became, quote, more reasonable, if I may use that word, mm-hmm. with respect to what's happening for the people. Because Roosevelt's job, we were in the midst of the Depression in 1933, that we're in the midst of the Depression. He's trying to find ways to keep the, the country viable. And one of those things was to create jobs through the government and then have the government pay for it. 
Mm. Judges didn't want that. So he said, okay, judges, here, here it comes, going up to 15. I'm the president, so there's executives on that side. Democrats are controlling the legislature, controlling the Congress, got the Congress at that side. You know, I'll appoint them, they'll pass them, and you'll be, U7 will be a minority of the new Supreme Court. Mm. And suddenly, those seven people got, quote, religion. Yeah. (laughs) And decisions began to change. That becomes, shall we say, one aspect of it. Take us up to the next thing that happened. In 1969, President Johnson appointed Abe Fortas. Uh, I think it was 69, we got an appointment to be an associate justice on the United States Supreme Court. Same year, an opening occurred for the chief justice, and President Johnson nominated Abe Fortas. Now, Abe Fortas had a problem. It wasn't an illegal problem, but he would be giving lectures and so forth to different organizations and things. And one of the organizations, he made a contract with that they will be paying so much you know, for the lectures, and that will go on to his wife and family after his death. Now, this particular organization did not have any cases before the Supreme Court. But, you know, if it did have cases, he would have to naturally recuse himself. Although, interestingly enough, and people are now beginning to find this out, all of the federal judiciary is controlled by laws for recusal and disqualification, except for one part of it. That's the United States Supreme Court. There's no, they are controlled in a sense by the law of disqualification, but nobody's really ever used it on them. So they're free to do what they want. Mm. So it, it, that's the split that we have yeah. today, it sounds, which is manifesting itself with Justice Thomas and Justice Al- Alito, and also um, the one of the liberal justices who's taken cases from where the publisher of her book was the party. So there you sit. And I hope that explains it a certain amount. A little bit, yeah. And I will tell you, based upon the way you've described uh, our Supreme Court of the United States, it sounds like we have nine popes, meaning that uh, they will uh, lay out uh, uh, the laws of the land and basically playing the role of legislative body. uh, And they're in there until they die or unless they want to step down as one pope, uh, I guess, did not too long ago. Uh, so then we had two popes, only only one of them was kind of calling the shots. Uh, and it's 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 kind of frustrating because now there are there are situations now that exist, as you uh, are well, I'm sure, well aware of where some of these judges and their conduct is being called into question. Their ethics are being called into question. And uh, there are those who say that uh, uh, no, you can't do anything. You, the, you know, the president can't do anything. Congress can't do anything because, you know, they're the supreme law of the land. Well, wasn't it Congress that that is the one that approves or 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 what have you the various judges? So wouldn't Congress have uh, the right to as a legislative body to, I don't know, hold these people accountable? However. Nobody's holding them accountable. They've got their own peccadilloes 
uh, you know, their own skeletons in the closet. So it's it's like, yeah, maybe, but probably not going to happen because of that very thing. Well, let's dig into that. Uh, first of all, finishing the forest story, even though he wasn't breaking any law or anything else, in 1969, Fortas resigned from both the United States Supreme Court and went into private practice. So there you have, I'll use it, the honorable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Now you've got the situation where neither Thomas or Alito or the other judge are resigning <laughs> because they say we're here, but there's an interesting thing. The in the Constitution, with respect to the judiciary, federal judiciary, they hold office, but they can be impeached for misconduct. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, under the true law, if the Congress got around to it, they would impeach these judges and get rid of them. In the history of the United States, I believe there's only been one Supreme Court justice that has actually been impeached. Mm. So you don't have the legislature or the Congress doing its part of the job. The things, and I, and by the way, I have tremendous respect for the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, it's uh, but there are limitations, self-made limitations in the U.S. Supreme Court. And we'll talk about one of these right now. This is a case that I was just recently involved with. The, the only people that have a right of appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court are people, federal criminals. When I say criminals, they've been convicted of a crime at the district court. It goes up to the Court of Appeal, the Ninth Circuit, Second Circuit, Fifth Circuit, Sixth Circuit. They stay with the decision. These people have a definite right of appeal to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Everyone else has to do it by what is called a petition for writ of certiorari. And that means that you ask the court to take the case. During 2022, there were 4,000, basically 4,400 petitions for writ of certiorari. The Supreme Court took 62 cases. In one article I read, there was one clerk, judicial clerk, that means the lawyers that help the judges, say that he has never recommended a certiorari in the entire time that he worked for the judge. And these clerkships usually will run two years and they can be reappointed so they can be there for four years. So that's one aspect. Same thing happens in California. Same situation, judicial misconduct, go in impeachment. The legislature in each side impeaches. In other words, that's going to be the assembly in California and the House of Representatives in the United States, the Senate has the trial. And then if the Senate convicts you, you're gone. They don't do it because they probably have more fun arguing about all these different things. And they don't want to, because if you take an impeachment trial, you know, that's going to take a certain amount of time and everything. And you really, the senators have no choice, but they have to listen to the trial and they can't get it. And they can't get on with their other business. Mm. So that gives you another aspect. When people say they're appointed for life, that is not really true. But because 
the legislature does not impeach by the House of Representatives or the California Assembly. If there's no impeachment, that's the first step. Nothing's going to happen to the judge. If they impeach, then they have to have the trial in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And that's going to take up more time in the Senate. That's your simple answer to the situation as to why these people are there. Now, right now, there's legislation that I can't, I don't remember exactly who's brought it up, but there's legislation now saying that a code of conduct should be put in for the Supreme Court. Because you do have a federal judicial code of conduct that covers the district courts and covers the appellate courts. And you actually have ways to go in and get rid of the judge. You can disqualify him under this, under the code of conduct mm-hmm. and under the law. And it's mm-hmm. a section 28 USC section 455 that if in fact the judge is in there and you show that he's on the take or you show some of these things, he's going to get disqualified, hopefully. But you know what happens in reality? This is what takes place. You have the judge sitting there. Let's take a district court judge. This actually happened. You take a district court judge, and let's say that that district court judge was appointed from California. Well, that district court judge was receiving the illegal payments from California. Now, whether it did or didn't come out during the hearings for that judge I don't know. But when it was brought up in front of that judge, there's another law that says if there's a disqualification that's filed, it's supposed to go to another judge here in California or in the federal district to another judge on the panel. This judge admits that she was taking the payments. And she says, well, yes, that was 10 years ago. Doesn't matter what it was, but... Then the next thing that she does, which is really the kicker here, she disobeys the local rule that says it has to go over to another judge. So she decides it herself. And then the next step is going to be, basically, you have to take this judge up on appeal. Well, if the case is still going on, it would have to be what we call an interlocutory appeal, because Usually you can't appeal a judge's decision until the whole case is over in the trial court. So if you can't get it certified for an interlocutory appeal, you're stuck with this judge until the judge makes a decision one way or the other, and then you can bring it up. Mm. Now, and reason I'm explaining all this is that these are details that I can honestly tell you most lawyers don't even know about. And unless you're practicing in the federal courts, you wouldn't even know this. The and in the state courts, the the way that the law is practiced now, they probably don't know it either. Yeah. The, uh, so you once again we're getting into breaking it down, seeing what's there, who are we dealing with? Now, in the case of Alito, about a week or two weeks ago, he came out with an article in the Wall Street Journal saying I'm a U.S. Supreme Court justice, and we don't have anything that says you can disqualify us, and therefore, we win, you lose. Uh, imagine let's about this guy. <laughs> I mean, wow. not only is he taking money from people, and he's sitting on their cases, but he's now telling both the Congress and the president 
there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> but yet in the Constitution, there is something. So now what are you looking at? Yeah. You're looking at some Congress people to get impeachment passed and then a trial and then get rid of the guy. Yeah. Well, there are two two elements there that uh, uh, stand in the way uh, in that respect. Uh, number one, uh, the most important one, of course, is that um, if it were ever to happen, which I, I doubt, uh, because uh, the uh, controlling party in the House has no interest in anything but getting revenge, going after uh, the, you know, anybody that uh, does not stand lockstep, you know, uh, with them, uh, with their agenda. But even that party is fractured because not all of the members of that party are in lockstep with each other. Uh, so you've got you've just got uh, a, such a mess. But it also brings up point number two from my perspective, my observation, uh, Richard. In the Constitution, it talks about the separation of powers and the checks and balances. And there were some issues that uh, a a president over the last um, and as far as my lifetime is concerned, over the last um, I'm just going to say 23 years. okay, in the 21st century, there has been one issue that a president has had to deal with. Almost every president, maybe not the first one in the 21st century, um, that they shouldn't be dealing with. And that's and I'm not we're not going to go down the road of of immigration, but the issue should not be handled by the president. It should be handled by the legislative body to fix the immigration laws or get rid of the old ones and put in some new ones. And not having the president, uh, whoever it is, doesn't matter which side of the aisle it is, not having the president writing and signing these stupid executive orders, trying to legislate from the executive branch. Uh, You know, I mean, from my perspective, I'd say no, no executive orders. You better turn that over to Congress. They're the ones, both the House and Senate, they're the ones that are supposed to be fixing this stuff, doing the people's business. And I think that's what really frustrates people, um, whether it's dealing with the judiciary and and the, the examples that you have given already of the corruption that exists. And, you, you know, the, and, and as me, just as a, a citizen of the of the country, I sit here going. What what the heck can I do? I mean, there's corruption in the system. We know it's there. I can't do anything about it. And yet there you are. And you were a former prosecutor. So you were sort of on the other side of the aisle when it came to uh, uh, court cases that you uh, that you uh, uh, litigated, if you will. And now you're you're on the other side, if you will, saying, look, uh, I've been in the lion's den, so to speak, or the viper's cage. I know what's going on. We got to fix this. And uh, do you feel? Do you feel that that over the years you have made progress in spite of the lack of support by both state and federal legislators towards judicial reform? Well. I think the answer is probably yes in an interesting way. But let me get to the first part of it. When I was I was in the antitrust division from 1968 to 1972, 
<clears throat> I was brought in by the Johnson administration, and then Nixon got elected. And basically by 69, you know, 69 onwards, we're under Nixon. At the point of time, the antitrust division that I was in was a really ethical organization. And we would go out and we would investigate. Now, actually, we did our own investigations because we had the right to send the FBI out because they're part of the Justice Department. But the FBI back in those days, when they would go out and talk to business, it was just sort of, hi, how are you, and everything else. They weren't giving us anything. So we would go out and do it. And we would do it through a grand jury. Now, the other side is before we would ask for a grand jury, we would get all the evidence and everything together. And we would see if there's really a violation here or if there isn't. And then you go in and you get the grand jury, which is an investigative body, and you bring all of that evidence in to the grand jury, and then the grand jury can vote on what we would call an indictment. Mm-hmm. Now, let me tell you where the whole system failed. Under the Johnson administration, it was everything worked. Nixon came in and he appointed a Chicago lawyer from the defense side. This Chicago lawyer came out of the same strain as most of us. He believed in the antitrust laws. And so consequently, we were able to get recommendations going up through the division. And his name was Richard McLaren. And through McLaren's office, you know, up to the next step. Now, this is something very few people realize. On a major antitrust case, like it was back then, you didn't, you couldn't bring that case unless the president of the United States consented. So first case that I had was a case going against an international cartel. We had everything down. I had, I think, literally 50 lawyers from Wall Street against me. Everybody wanted to see that indictment come down. We in the division wanted to see it come down because we had shown that it should exist. The Wall Street lawyers were hoping that it would come down because they would get their kids through college. You're ending up with a criminal case. (laughs) You know, the amount of money that they were going to make is going to be unbelievable. Nixon rejected it. Now, it came back and um, I was like anyone. I was a little bit ticked off and everything. So the department gave me two choices of what to do. Two really big grand juries. One of them was to investigate the NFL. And the other one was to investigate GM and Ford for price fixing. Well, I'm not a big guy. (laughs) And I like football. (laughs) So I selected to not go after the NFL, let somebody else do that one. But to go after GM and Ford, that was really good. (laughs) It was straight on business. They were fixing the price. And they were threatening Chrysler. So I took on that investigation. We came up with the whole thing, uh, goes to the White House. But this time, we did something that the White House really didn't like. We informed the White House that if you go, if you turn us down, we're going to do, we're going to let the grand jury run. And that means that 
we are going to follow your orders, Mr. Nixon, President Nixon. We, the grand jury has a right to decide. And we're going to tell them that you have a right to decide. The president of the United States doesn't want this to happen. But you, as the grand jury, can vote an indictment and it's going to go forward. I don't know what made Nixon believe that, <laughs> but all of a sudden we got the okay. So these are some of the things of what the antitrust division was like back then. Also, most of the antitrust lawyers that were on the other side had come through the division. So what you had is you had unanimity, unanimity of opinion within an entire part of the bar that the antitrust laws should and must be supported. Mm. So those were the glory days. <laughs> now, <laughs> I ran into one lawyer recently in doing my strategic consulting, and uh, the lawyer said, yeah, I said, she said, I looked you up, and you were in the antitrust division from 68 to 72. Those are the glory days. <laughs> that person was uh, working for the FTC more recently in 20, 20, 22, 23, mm -hmm. in the 19th part. So that gives you one aspect of what is taking place. Now, getting to what you can do. I think we've only had a few presidents impeached. I think Andrew Johnson was one. Mm -hmm. When I say impeached, they brought the charges. Right. The uh, You still have to have the Senate trial. The I think Johnson either resigned or something before they had the trial. You have Nixon. He got impeached, resigned before they had the trial. But then you had Clinton. Mm -hmm. Got impeached. And I believe he went to trial in the Senate. Senate was Democratic. <laughs> and it died. Yeah. And he is the president. So this gives you the political aspect. And I won't say... In fact, I will say with a certain amount of confidence that most people do not know exactly how the system works and what things can be done within the system. But this also answers another question that you had earlier on. Why do I do what I do? Mm -hmm. Because I come out of that background of those four, the four years that I was in the division. And the division had a split on active, I would say, very active prosecutors and not so active prosecutors. As it turned out, the very the Justice Department was on the third floor of, um, or the antitrust division was on the third floor of the Justice Department. And there was a corner of that floor that had the people that were really doing it we were known as the activists. We were fair, but when we went out to investigate, if there wasn't a fix or if under law we couldn't get a, a price fix, then no no indictment came out. Never even went to the president. Now, what takes place is I'll give you a little side example here. Every, everyone looks at the interest rates going up. When one bank does it, all the other banks do it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's a decision out there that says that that is parallelism, and therefore, it's not really an antitrust violation. So 
since no one has found the banks actually talking to each other and getting together to say what they're going to do, they're getting away with parallelism. No, there's no evidence of collusion, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You really have you really have to show I, I don't like the word conspiracy. I usually like the word concert of action. Mm-hmm. But um, you have to show that in order to enforce the antitrust laws. Yeah. So this is another thing that people don't realize. Then I'm going to take you way off course. <laughs> I, brought the, I brought the case against OPEC in 1979. Ah. And uh, basically some of my friends said, well, the only case reason that OPEC was brought is because Richard didn't want to wait in a gas line. <laughs> <laughs> but the OPEC price fix was so relevant and it was so public. You know, OPEC has public meetings and it's all reported mm-hmm. and they come out with things. And the way that they actually fix the prices is that they go in and they decide each nation that is at the OPEC meeting goes in and they decide how they're going to raise their taxes on the producers to make sure that the price ends up at the OPEC agreed price. Hmm. So you now have the situation as to the nations who have a wholly owned subsidiary that is doing the producing is going in and raising their taxes and everything. So you have the set price coming out. But then there's a part of the law, United States law, that says if a nation is doing something as its political position or actions that it can do as a nation, then you can't really win. If they're doing something commercially, you win. Now, let's take Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia owns their own production facilities. So they own part of it. So now they're really in the other side of it. But then in the OPEC case, what came out is that the judge, the local judge, came in and said, well, they're really doing this as a government type thing and they're raising the taxes. So I'm going to deny the case, take it up to the court of appeals. Court of appeals says, wait a minute. There's no question here that this is a price fix. No question they're doing that. But because they claim that they're doing it as part of their sovereign nation, the United States has a law or has court cases that say that you can't sue a sovereign nation for what it's doing in its national interests. So the OPEC case lost at the Court of Appeals level. Mm. So these are the things that take place. And it's another way of looking at it. Now, yeah. I'll give you another part of this, which becomes really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that the judge was at a convention of uh, judges and the then attorney general came up to him and he said, hey, what's happening with that OPEC case of yours? Well, attorney general isn't supposed to be asking about that. This judge was so straight on that he told everybody about it in the courtroom. So it's in the record. 
I mean, he wasn't about to get hit with what he said was, you know, what he knew was someone trying to put coercion on his behalf. Mm. Now, we later found out, and I don't know if the story is true or not, because I was not there to witness it. But years after the OPEC case was over, a friend of a friend of mine told me that his friend was president was present at the White House when King Saud of Saudi Arabia called President of the United States and said, if this OPEC case goes on, we're pulling all of our investment out of the U.S. Hmm. Guess what? <laughs> so that's how they got out of it. Now, I don't know if that true story is true or not, because there's no yeah. way that I can go in and actually legitimize the story. Right. My own experience. It's it's basically, if I had to go into a court of law and say that, it would come out as hearsay. Yeah. You have to actually go in and bring in the guy. Yeah. Who was well, there. yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll go ahead and stamp uh, allegedly. Okay, to keep it uh, to keep it out of the courts. <laughs> allegedly, this happened uh, uh, based upon uh, uh, what you're sharing with us. And it's very interesting. Richard Fine is my guest. RichardFineLaw.com is the website. I'm Richard Dugan. This is Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan with uh, Richard Fine. And uh, there's no confusion here. Uh, he is uh, uh, he is not wearing a uh, cowboy hat. I am. And uh, we're talking about judicial reform. A couple of quick things before we uh, come to the close here. And I, I, first of all, thank you for giving us so much time. Um, first of all, when you have a grand jury at any level, uh, you know, county, I don't know if they're county, but state or federal, and a grand jury, again, does the research and they put together the quote unquote evidence, okay, and they decide, based upon the information that, that they have, to issue, I guess it's the right term, an indictment. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that the prosecution has a slam dunk because the uh, grand jury, looking at all of the information they gathered, uh, issues the indictment. And uh, is that is that a fair statement? Oh, absolutely. The indictment is like a complaint. It's like a traffic ticket. Okay. It only starts the process going. Now, bringing your thing with grand juries, federal grand juries last for 18 months. And you can have the grand jury as many times as you can get them to come during that 18-month period of time. I can tell you that the investigation of the pulp, press, the pulp paper and newsprint industry lasted for 18 months. And we got a confession from a guy that was at the meetings. The uh, On the investigation of GM and Ford, that lasted for 18 months. And we got the evidence. So the, as I say, that is the beginning. Then the next thing that comes in is that the person, the defendant, comes in and they plead guilty or not guilty to the indictment. Well, nobody's going to plead guilty. <laughs> so... <laughs> You're now into the trial process with what you call discovery and all these other things. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing back then, and I think it's still existing today, once the case became public, the other side, the defense lawyers, could subpoena the grand jury transcripts to see, number one, what evidence did the grand jury have to do 
the indictment so they knew how to really prepare their defense. So what the grand jury did then becomes public after the indictment. Hmm. And usually in cases like these, there's always a class action suit. And so what happens is that the class action lawyers, the first thing that they do is they subpoena the grand jury transcripts hmm. and they get them. Yeah. So that takes one, literally one part of the whole thing. Yeah. And I'm going to throw in another thing. The I lived in Europe for four years. Uh, I did when I was doing my PhD at the London School of Economics. During that period of time, I traveled to every country in the Europe with the exception of Romania, Bulgaria, and Yugoslavia. So I was in Russia. I was in Czechoslovakia. I was in Hungary. And I can honestly, and I was also in Tangier. And I, from my own personal experience, and having been taught the law of these countries by actually the professors from the countries in courses that I took at um, at other places in addition to London, I can tell you that there is no country that has a judicial system that is set up like ours. We really are the greatest country in the world mm-hmm. as far as immigration and so forth are concerned. However, the problem that has developed is that they just aren't enforcing it. Right. And the executive has the right to deal with the executive branches. So the executive goes in and tells an executive branch, for instance, I want you to follow this. They put it in an administrative rule, and that becomes one of the things. Yeah. So that's part of the split and everything. And, and really, these are the things that people... I don't say have to. I never says anyone has to do anything. But I respectfully suggest (laughs) that someone look into these types of things. And then hopefully, and I sincerely hope that we get back to the time when I was involved in this and I was involved in the practice of law in addition to just the Supreme Court where the everyone in the business, in quotes, was really, really ethical. And I've seen corporate lawyers dealing with witnesses in the class action case where I was on the plaintiff side of the class action, and we would call in an executive and everything, and the executive was screwing around in quotes, giving the answers, and his lawyer said to him, he said, look, if you don't give this guy the right answers, he's going to fry you like you've never been fried before. (laughs) So that gives you a feeling of what the ethical part of the bar was like. Now, I'm not too sure if that worked down all the way into the state levels and so forth. But with these firms that I was up against, and I also defended securities cases and antitrust cases, but with that mentality, you had a really good system working. Yeah. And the things who, that you're talking about now just doesn't exist. Yeah. Who well, makes up who makes up the grand jury? Uh, first of all, uh who makes it up, but who uh decides who is on the grand jury? Okay. What happens is that once the <clears throat> Justice Department decides that there should be a grand jury, you go to the local judge in the area, like the um, 
grand jury on the pulp paper news industry was held in New York. The grand jury in the GM and Ford case was held in Detroit. Mm -hmm. Now, at that point, the judge says, yes, you can have a grand jury. Then the people are randomly selected from the, uh, basically from the voter list. Okay. So it's just like if I was to be selected for a jury. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what makes the grand jury process in a sense it's still one-sided because the, the defense is not coming allowed to come in at the grant at the grand jury room. But I can assure you that as soon as a witness walks out of the grand jury room, the defense lawyers are sitting there and they're getting every piece of information that that person told the grand jury. And they're spreading in part you know, amongst themselves. So they actually know what's going on in the grand jury on a day-by-day basis. Mm-hmm. We as prosecutors knew that. They knew that. We saw them sitting outside the door and everything. So you have this type of stuff happening. Interesting. But it worked. You know, it really comes down into what's going to happen on the political side. And then you have the guts of the people that were in the GM and Ford case, they really sent the word to Nixon, you screw with us and this is what we're going to do. So here you are, myself at the lowest level of the antitrust division, because I was a young guy back then. Mm-hmm. 1970, <laughs> 1968, I was 28 years old. I was this 28-year-old kid you know, involved in these grand juries and things, going in and having... I'll use the word the chutzpah, as they say, to go in and tell the president of the United States, you screw with us, this is what's going to happen. Mm. I mean, so wow. that, was the, that was the mentality that was existing back then. Mm. One of the problems is that that mentality is not, for the most part, existing today. And when you combine that with the things we've talked about with the judges and the non-enforcement and everything else, we have a country that is in trouble. Yeah. So if you go to the court system and try and win with the things that I want to do, I'm going to lose. Yeah. The only place that I can go to is the legislature. And I'm going to leave you with one thing. As part of my legislation, it went to every legislator in California. And also, it was before the Senate Appropriations Committee on Monday. The first the guy in the Appropriations Committee, you know, I asked him if I could appear. He said no. And I said, well, I want this bill presented, you know, and I want you to look at it because you can actually amend it. And uh, he said, well, no, you can't. I said, give me the law that says that. Well, he says, well, there really isn't anything. I said, well... Maybe you ought to do something like do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you know, so basically, I'm actually using this program to call out the people in the California state legislature mm-hmm. and the people in the California state Senate and the Appropriations Committee of not doing their job. In fact, as I said before, none of these people actually came back and even said they got the legislation. Mm. That's how bad it is. That's what you're looking at and fighting for today. 
Yeah. And it, it sounds to me like uh, basically this uh, this bill that you're proposing is basically saying in layman's terms, if you do your job right, there'll be no payouts. But if you don't do your job right, it's going to cost the state. So make it, you know, you 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 decide what you're going to do. And what we need to do now is take a quick pause here and let our listeners know this is Tell Me Your Story. We're talking with Richard Fine. Website is richardfinelaw.com. We'll be linked to that website on our podcast and video cast. And uh, you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan with Richard Fine. And uh, we've been talking uh, an immense about, immense a lot, uh, a lot about. I'm going to say uh, physics, uh, civics, I should say, civics uh, uh, of, of a nature, uh, as I remember my civics uh, uh, classes and so forth. And when you referred to, and I'm just going to bring this up very quickly before we wrap up, you brought up the fact that there are those who believe that the Constitution is a living document. And I couldn't agree with you more. And the And, and I can give the prime example of why and how it is a living document to those who don't think it should ever, ever be touched. It is not a living document. All right. There's the Bill of Rights and then the other, what is it, 17 amendments to the Constitution. That says it's a living document right there. And uh, I thank you for uh, for sharing with us uh, what you have. I do have three final questions that I do want to ask you, Richard, before we wrap up. Sure. But before I do, I want to thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, where we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We are here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. That's our special edition of Tell Me Your Story. We uh, are also podcasting. On SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other uh, websites, uh, many other locations on the web, uh, too numerous to mention. We're also on YouTube where you can watch these interviews. It's a little more of an intimate uh, uh, conversation that you can not exactly participate in, but that you can listen to and, and glean information from, and we hope that you will do that. We also ask that if you can support our work financially, of, of um, as I've said before, we're trying to change the world. Okay, big big thing, but I'm I'm willing to take it on, and um, we're we're making uh, we're making some headway. Other people are doing the same thing, so we're not alone. Uh, but if you'd like to support this work, well, go to PayPal. We have a PayPal account; it's there for your security as well as ours. And also spend some time during the decade of perfect vision the 2020s going within and listening to that still small voice i would venture richards listen to that voice more more often than than he'd like to admit because uh you can't go wrong it'll never guide you in the wrong direction it is uh it is uh not bipartisan it's nonpartisan. it's uh, apolitical a religious um whatever other category you want to list there it's there for you so we hope that you'll do that with all of that being said, uh, now we move to the final three questions of our program. And the first of those is, who is Richard Fine? Well, the, I'll give it to you, hopefully in a short form. The, um, I'm from the Midwest, born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The, went to the University of Wisconsin undergrad, University of Chicago for my law school, and the London School of Economics for my PhD. And the PhD 
is in law, international law. From Chicago, I got a concentrative law degree. Uh, that's my academic background. The In addition to that, I took various courses. Uh, at the LSE, we had a comparative law course. Uh, there was the international faculty for the teaching of comparative law. First session was in English. The next two sessions were in French. The uh, Then I was at the uh, comparative International University for Comparative Law in Luxembourg. Then I also, at The Hague, went through both courses of The Hague, both international law and private international law. So that gives you the academic background that was taking place. Uh, amongst other things in my life, one year I came to California and worked for a law firm. A year after that, I was called upon to become the special counsel for the Government Efficiency Committee of the LA uh, City Council. And they were and they were investigating Sam Yorty or and some of his people for corruption. Mm-hmm. So they decided to Bradley had become the mayor at that point, little politics and expect expect. And they decided that they would do the investigation. And you know, they called upon me to come in and do it. And we nailed Sam and his people. And then I founded the first municipal antitrust division in the country. So that came into it. Um, and a whole different type of things from 1995 to 2070, I mean, 2010, when I turned, became 70 years old and was, quote, termed out, I was the council general for the nation of Norway in Southern California, five counties in Southern California. So that's another part of my life. Mm. The In all of these things, I think I have to go into a very interesting thing, and this becomes family. Being in Milwaukee and everything, my mother's dream for me, in quotes, was to become a lawyer, maybe have an insurance business on the side, and stay in Milwaukee. <laughs> my dad said, Rich... <laughs> Go for it. The world is open to you. Just go for it. Mm. And I got got lucky and I got into the University of Chicago Law School. When I finished off with that, my international law professor wrote to the London School of Economics and gave a recommendation. I got into that. And that's really who is Richard Fine. And then there's another part of it. And this is sort of a belief. And the belief is that if you are lucky enough, as I was, to be able to get this type of an education, you are obligated, and I'm going to use the word obligated, to go in and use that education for good. Mm-hmm. You don't go out and get that education, just stay on one side of it or the other. It's a, it's a moral and ethical obligation. Mm-hmm. That is my belief. Mm-hmm. When you say, who is Richard Fine? That's who I am. It's from the background and everything else. It's part of all this during law school, during the summers, I worked construction. <laughs> you know, I did a number of basic jobs. And then when I was out of law school, I went to the LSE. And then the first year, it took the government a year to do 
my security clearance because I was in all these countries. And the security clearance, and this is another interesting part, when you're overseas, the overseas part is taken care of by the CIA. The domestic part is taken by the FBI. Mm-hmm. Near to about that year, I called the American embassy in London, and I, you know, I asked for the CIA. I guess on the phone, he says, CIA? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, hi, I'm Richard Fine, and you're doing my security clearance. And what's taking so long? CIA guy says, don't blame me. We finished it off a long time ago. The CIA <laughs> is holding it up. <laughs> so I mean, this gives you the humor yeah. of what comes in to these types of things. And while they were doing that clearance, I went to work for the most prominent international law firm, basically in the world, it was called Kudair Brothers. And I had the joy of working with Alexis Kudair, who was a senior partner of that firm, on doing an international contract. At that time, Lockheed had developed an L-1011, which many people have probably flown upon. It was a super airplane. G- GE wanted their engines to go into that plane. Lockheed wanted Rolls-Royce engines to go into the plane. And GE was really putting the pressure on the Congress. So what happened is that Lockheed sold 50 of these planes to a company called Air Holdings. Solid contracts. Well, I had the joy and the opportunity as at that point, a 27-year-old guy (laughs) working with Alexis Kudera on negotiating that particular contract. So my life sort of started out on things that were way beyond what my mother thought (laughs) I should be doing and perfectly in sync mm-hmm. with what my father thought should be happening. And then another factor came into this. This is all very personal, but I think it shows why a person does something. During the four years that I was overseas, I came back to Milwaukee, and I went to Bob's Big Boy, where in high school we all used to go. Mm-hmm. And there was one guy who was sitting there. His name was Larry. And I said, hi, Larry, how are you doing? And I get this blast that, well, I'm not like you. I'm not going to London School of Economics. So I got home, and I talked to my dad about it. And he said, Rich, he said, look, he said, the more you go on, the more successful you get, the more enemies you're going to have. And you're not even going to know who 99% of them are. So don't worry about it. <laughs> Just get in there and do the best you possibly can. Exactly. And good and bad things are going to happen, but you're going to be comfortable. Exactly. And I followed that advice. Absolutely. My well, well, my next question is, with all of that being said, what is your life's purpose? You know, I think, and I can honestly say, nobody's really asked me what my life's purpose is because I've sort of followed this other rule that you just get in there and do it. The I'm that not that type of person that says I have quote this purpose, mm-hmm. I, but I do have something that we mentioned when you and I were talking. I have a very basic faith that God gives you opportunities mm-hmm. and it's our job to follow through. And one of my other uncles actually said, Richard, whatever happens to you, there's going to be two sides to it, an up and a down. 
take the upside. Mm -hmm. Stay with that part because everything that happens to you is an opportunity. Most people don't see the opportunity that exists. Let's take this legislation. What happened there? Courts are shutting you down. Judges are corrupt. I know I'm not going to win on that side. Where I deal, I deal with the legislature. Legislature isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. What do I do? I expose it on your program. See, because when you shine the light, Mm -hmm. (laughs) things change. Now, I know most victims of corruption, be it in the family law or in the probate law, you know, even the criminal law were. But in family law and probate law sections, it is rife. I mean, unbelievably rife. So if you go in and you see this, and really the way that I see it most directly is that in my strategic consulting job, I specialize in government corruption and government abuse of power. So I get calls with the people and what their story is and everything else and decide whether I'm going to do something about it or not. Mm. That, I don't say that's a life purpose. Yeah. But I think it comes in from what the advice was from Uncle Joey. Look at the opportunity. Don't worry about the other side. When life comes from my dad, do it. (laughs) Don't worry about the criticism. And from the things that I've won and the things that I lost. I mean, and just to throw in the examples on, on the California side, I stopped 26 years of budget crises in California. And for 26 years, every year we'd have a budget crisis and they'd last up to 90 days sometimes. And so California wasn't paying the money to the counties to pay welfare. Mm-hmm. It wasn't paying the money to the people that had contracts were mostly mm-hmm. minority, small business people, women, I got lucky. Yeah. I brought the suit and I got an injunction. Mm. <laughs> and the injunction went in there and stopped them from doing this. The next day, basically what happened is they paid out $19 billion to get all these people paid. Another thing I did in California is that during this whole period of time, the small businesses and so forth lost money Hmm. but there wasn't any way to get that done yeah i sued the government and i said hey you guys are doing this settled that one for 600 million going out to the individuals and by this point in time it's already up to probably over a billion wow so that's sort of who i am do i have a life purpose i don't know Did I get good advice? <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> uh, I got some of the best advice. And that brings us to the thing that there are a lot of things that the schools can't teach you. Mm-hmm. Ethics is one of them. And then the other part of it, in college, I took a course called uh, Constitutional Law, taught by a professor from a political science point of view. And when I finished that course, I didn't really understand it. Because he was teaching the political side of what's happening to these decisions. You go to law school, they don't teach you that part of it. They only teach you the law. Mm -hmm. But I now look back and I say that was probably some of the the most valuable courses that someone could teach. It's too bad that it's taught during the times between 17 and 21. Yeah, I hear you. (laughs) my, My final question to you is, what was your best day? 
what was my best day? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say right now, our first grandchild <laughs> came a month ago. Ah, congratulations. Next to, yeah, next to the birth of my daughter, <laughs> that's probably my second best day. All well, the Richard- is nice, but yeah. still, let's get down to the real places. Exactly. Well, Richard, Richard Fine, I thank you again for giving us so much time and uh, uh, sharing this story. And I hope people will uh, get involved and do something. Uh, and they can contact you through your website, which is richardfinelaw.com. And once again, I really do appreciate giving us so much time here on the program. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lol, Jeanette, I am still listening. Dad, continue to be happy. Doug, I'll see you on the other side and have a great day.